Uh, welcome to the latest Downtown and Business podcast, uh, a frank conversation with. And this week, I'm joined by Dan Davis. Daniel is the chief executive of Rock Point Leisure. Rock Point Leisure, uh, behind one of the most exciting regeneration teams that's been seen in uh, the Liverpool City region for many years, and probably the most exciting innovative regeneration scheme that's been seen over the water in the Wirral. Um, a lot of people are described when they run businesses as entrepreneurs. I often say that's a, an overused phrase. Um, but Dan, as you will hear today, uh, most certainly can um, have that title attached to him. He's run several uh, successful businesses over a career that dates back more years than his age uh, should uh, should <laughs> should be uh, capable of doing, really. Um, so at a relatively young age, started uh, getting into business um, and ran a hugely successful company called CPL Training, which he subsequently built um, to a point where he sold it for, uh, well, a couple of bob, which we will talk about during the course of the conversation. Uh, but as I say, more importantly, perhaps in terms of uh, today, that great regeneration scheme and his passion uh, for doing something very, very special on the Wirral. So, Dan, welcome. Hi, Frank. Great to Thanks see you, mate. Help. Yeah, no, great to see you. Thanks for for coming along. Um, so, I do want to start to uh, to to look at, as I say, the plans that you've got at the moment. I've been across, looked at some of the things that you've got planned, and it's spectacular. I think in terms of your ambition for for that project. But before then, let's go back to the beginning. Um, and how you got started in business. Okay. Um, well, probably the first job I had was in the early 80s. Um, I would say probably as paperboy, sort of. Um, and in the early 80s, obviously, there was quite a few things that went on. Um, the Falklands War, um, your likes of the unrest in Toxteth, uh, St Paul's in Bristol, um, Broadwater Farm. Sorry, I'm going to out a bit here. Um, and that basically, I, I delivered papers. And I think actually, it's only looking back in the last, you know, few years, we've done quite a bit of um, sort of like reflection and soul searching about what the next chapter of my life's going to be. And that I am looking back and looking at different jobs. My first job is actually one of the most important and significant, I think, um, that I've had. Because when you deliver newspapers every day, you deliver newspapers from left to right. So you, if it's a national or international story, it tends to... Um, it tends to be covered by the majority of the newspapers. So you, you tend to read them and that, you know, I'd form an opinion based on a variety of different uh, viewpoints, um, you know, across the, 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 the spectrum. And it always hit home when, it, um, you know, I'd, I'd go home after delivering the newspapers, mum and dad would be having their, their breakfast and they read one newspaper and then watch news channels. Um, and that it, one particular day, I'd delivered every newspaper carried the front page of a, a natural disaster that had taken place and about 1,400 people had died, apart from the one that my mum and dad read, which was which was covering what the Queen was wearing for uh, the first four pages. And that, that really struck home to me, just, just the importance, especially now, I think it's more relevant than anything with fake news and Trump and power that, um, you know, that people get a balanced view of, you know, of what's going on in the world, not just from one source. And in terms of 
that then leads in you into obviously forming your own political views, political opinions, um, and your outlook on life. Did it sort of steer one direction or another politically? Um, I, I, I voted Labour and I voted Conservative. Um, I am probably more middle of a road, but um, I, I think that I think politics just gone a bit mad. If I look back when I left school, sort of the late eighties, early nineties, um, you know, started CPL. Um, you know, the Berlin Wall had come down. Um, there was a real feeling that you know that I think the the world was moving in a better place for. Um, you know, for a period of time with, with you know, Eastern Europe, um, you know, sort of coming into one um, and, and just a general feeling that, you know, um, you know, there was opportunities out there. Um, you know, I was sort of, you know, the 80s, the Band-Aid era, um, you know, but I think there was quite a positive outlook. Um, obviously, when we started CPL, it was, uh, I would be, I'd been working in bars um collecting glasses in New Brighton. So I delivered papers there. I was a glass collector. I delivered leaflets. We had a, when I was at school, we were always, um, you know, doing little business ventures and things like that, setting up attic sales and various other things. So we're always like, you know, doing second jobs and third jobs and running around when we were, when we were actually at school and college. Um, and I went into the hospitality business at 16, 17, glass collecting and behind the bar. And I worked up quite quickly as assistant manager and manager while I was actually doing my A-levels. Um, I briefly worked for a corporate um, bank, um, um, NWS, in uh, Chester for about three or four months. Um, when I had when I'd left one of the bar chains that I was, I was, I was working for, and that and that's when I started CPL as well. So I went back to run that place again, started CPL, and that's really how it grew. Um, that, was, that was the foundation of it in uh, back in 1991. Mm. So tell us what CPL was about at the outset. Um, well, we were running bars, and that um, there was a, you know three of us who started it. Um, we were all actually operating bars and managing places, and there was a sort of a need for training. Um, Paul had started a little training consultancy. He was doing, uh, you know, a few courses a month. And that, you know, we, we just sort of got together and thought we could train our own staff, but also there was a need for training. And we saw, you know, that actually it was people were going to have to be trained more, not less. Um, so, so that's really how we started it. And we started off, um, you know, we had our own qualification. We got that recognised all around the country. We travelled to every town and city around the UK and presented to sort of licensing boards and got our courses approved. And then we, you know, people who are interested in, in, in furthering the career in the trade or getting trained would come to us. And we initially started in sort of Bolton and Stafford with courses. Then we had one in Newcastle and one in Reading and we'd run weekend courses. And that um, we then decided to, to, you know, open up a bit more and do one day courses, which was a sort of new regulation that was, was uh, you know, starting out. And that from there, um, we, we just really sort of grew it quite, quite aggressively. We went from sort of four to 40 training venues and then went to 80, um, our staff increased and we, we found as we were getting, you know, better at delivery and, um, and, and being quite quirky about our approach to, you know, advertising and marketing and, and the sort of delivery of, of courses that we were getting more and more, you know, bigger clients. 
Um, I remember, you know, for big chains sort of started to come on board, one of our first big customers was the um, the Fresher Group, who owned Fresher Victoria Wine, Wine Rack, Haddo's in Scotland and the local. And then we got, you know, Asda and a lot of the supermarkets and, and off-license chains, and then sort of the big pub companies and things sort of followed. Um, and that was a face-to-face uh, training business. So we were delivering about 30,000, you know, people um, uh, uh, trained through 80 sort of course venues up and down the UK, dealing with different types of legislation. And we had a different sort of approach to the model. So um, we, we ended up, um, you know, buying out some of our competitors, growing the business. And then about sort of, I mean, we've been through like three recessions and you have to keep reinventing the business and making sure that you're relevant. So we were getting to a stage where we'd, um, we'd started looking some international work and we picked some up in the Gulf region. Um, but we also wanted to look from a tech point of view because we thought, you know, e-learning was at the sort of, you know, the start of the curve and that we thought we can't ignore it. But on the other hand, we thought, you know, are we going to rob Peter to pay Paul if, mm. we, if we start putting people on e-learning courses uh, as opposed to face-to-face courses? So we we had a couple of strategy away uh, days and we, we just locked ourselves away and, and just sort of planned. And we decided we we're going to form CPL online, um, which incorporated sort of a CPL e-learning offer. And um, I took uh, one guy on, Dave, um, who, was, who ended up a business partner in it, really talented guy. Um, and that's how really we started the online side, which ended up, you know, uh, again, growing. And a lot of our customers that we had for face-to-face used other companies for e-learning. And what we found, those companies were quite complacent. They had big market share, but we didn't really look after the customers. So we went, you know, to our customers and said, if we were going to go into e-learning, you know, what would you want it to look and feel like? We wanted to listen to them. We did a very rigorous competitor analysis, looking at all the competition, not just in the UK, but abroad. And we decided that we we're going to go into it. We've got to be better, um, slicker. It's got to be more customized, more future-proof tech-wise. And, um, you know, and, and we really grew it from there. So, you know, within sort of 18 months, the main competitor that we had there, had virtually exited the market because we'd we'd obviously a lot of customers come over to us because we'd a better product. And so you you get to that point where you've grown the business over how many years was that done? Uh, Twenty eight years. Twenty eight years. <laughs> An overnight success. Yeah. Um, I mean, and- we were we were you know we, we were fairly successful from the word go. Mm. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't particularly see myself as being a CEO of a training company. Um, I wanted to be, you know, a rock star or, um, you know, Formula One driver or something. But uh, I was in a band, but we were that bad. Every time we uh, played a gig, we had to change the name. So <laughs> I sort of ruled out a career in the uh, music business fairly early on by popular demand, I think. <laughs> um, so it's all the things that I really wanted. I mean, I did art and photography and things like that. And they actually came into, I suppose those sort of skills came into play at CPL because a lot of our marketing and advertising was quite quirky and we were always sort of punched above our weight there. Um, so actually, you know, when you when you grow the business, you especially when you go through a number of, you know, big recessions where you lose major clients and you get, you know, hit for hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of, you know, lost business. 
one of the, you know, one of the things you've got to keep reinventing yourselves, but also you've got to keep growing. You've got to keep giving opportunities for staff who work with you. Because if you just say, okay, well, that's it, you know, we've got to this size, we're going to stick. That's presuming everyone else is staying still and they're not, they're moving forward. So even if you sort of slow up or stay still, um, you're actually moving backwards. So you've got to keep innovating. You've got to keep giving opportunities to people. And that we had been in the sort of a choir or a choir phase for probably about a decade. Uh, and we'd been buying up a number of niche, uh, smaller companies, um, you know, and amalgamating them in, using the skill set and, and growing the business, not just in the UK, but abroad. Um, and that it just got to the stage where for there's big um, sort of venture capital funds uh, and that you know, private equity circling at the moment in the sort of sector, we were in a sweet spot where, you know, uh, things like training, HR, you know, IT systems, big data, all of this was very relevant and we had some very big, you know, decent contracts with major international uh, blue chip players. So we were in that sort of sweet spot and we were getting asked and approached all the time. I had 250 staff who worked in Birkenhead um, and I thought, I, I don't want to sell to a typical sort of venture capital firm because most of the time I knew they'd end up asset stripping it and just keeping the clients and, and making most of the people redundant. And I thought after 28 years of building the business up, I wouldn't be able to sit back passively and let that happen. Um, so it was quite amusing in the run-up. I think one uh, VC firm said it was the fastest knockback that they'd ever had <laughs> um, when it made an offer. It was under 10 seconds on email. Um, and a, a couple of others, you know, that we got into some fairly, uh, uh, you know, uh, protracted discussions with, like, you know, we decided that we didn't want to. And that um, I ended up selling to CGA, um, which is run by a guy called Damien Walsh. Uh, he's our... He was a non-exec chairman for us for a while, and I sit on a couple of boards in London with him. Um, he's a really decent, honourable guy, and that every twenty percent of his company is owned by Nielsen, the big data company. Uh, he's got an international business, but he's always stayed true to where he's from, which is in Stockport, where their head office is. Um, so I, I just thought that was the right fit, and if I could have got more money from it, at least the staff were all safeguarded, and it was you know an ethical, decent sort of company that I'm selling to. So that was important for me. I've had other businesses. I had uh, two security firms. Um, one was a, sort of a, a more specialist one uh, nationally that was part owned by Colleen Logistics, which is part of the Muller group. Um, and I saw that a few, you know, about four years ago. But I mean, that business that we actually started to sell, um, CPL, I never really started it, it just it just sort of organically yeah. sort of grew and because it was the only constant in my life since my 80th birthday um and you give a lot of sacrifices up for it, it was a, a, a you know a big decision for mm. me to even sell any of it yeah because you've got an emotional attachment to the business the people that are in it um but equally you know credit to you've stuck by your principles You've taken a buyer who, as you rightly say, are going to continue with the ethos and the principles by which you've set that company up. And you've still got an interest in it, Dan, haven't you? Yeah, we've still got 5% of the two companies. I, mean, I was with Damien yesterday. We sat on the um, UK Hospitality Board, um, you know, and it, it's it obviously, you know, I keep in touch with all the guys there. It's doing well. Um, it's, you know, it's part of something much bigger now. 
uh, and, and there's good opportunities for more, you know, there's offices all around the world. Um, and, and also as well, you know, once EPL to go on to the next level, I think mm. it probably, you know, there's potential it could float in the States next, you know, the next few years. Um, but, but, and I've got some fantastic um, guys there who are, are really, you know, uh, are doing well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm at that, that's it really. I mean, a lot of people took a chance on me when I was working in, you know, New Brighton. Um, and that I think that a lot of the time, if you, if you find, you know, the education system has, has failed a lot of people um, over the last sort of 20 years, 30 years. Um, and I think that, you know, you can be an ethical employer as well, and you've got to give opportunities. If you, one of the one of the businesses that always um, stood out for me as a model was Unilever, um, the Port Sunlight sort of uh, village there. And if you look at Lord Leverhulme, who actually built the promenade in New Brighton, the biggest in the UK, he also built the largest baths, um, the open air baths, New Brighton baths. But he built a, a a village for his staff to live in. Um, and it was bigger, you know, uh, a big, bigger sort of square meterage than the, uh, the the factory that they worked in. And still to this day, it's absolutely immaculate. It had open spaces, uh, you know, art galleries, public house, you know, everything, everything, you know, uh, in, a, in a beautiful sort of laid out format. And I think that, you know, you don't have to be a, a, a bad employer now. You've got to give opportunities. Um, and that, you know, the birth of Rock Point really has been sort of, you know, what was going to do after CPL. Yeah. And even though I saw the first part, I mean, it was another 12 months before I saw the rest, you know, another big lump. Um, I, I sort of decided that I wanted to do something, you know, um, for the next chapter of my life, which was, was going to use the skill set that I had. Um, but also just, just, I was a bit cynical about, you know, sort of big business and about, you know, how things work and politics and everything. And I just thought, well, you know, you can't change the world like we all thought everyone could in, in the sort of band-aid era. Um, but you can try and change one postcode or, you know, your doorstep because, you know, no matter how, no matter how much money that you've got, if you never move away from where, you, where you're from and you still hang around with your same mates and still drink in the same pub, you know, that sort of um, disparity between, you know, people's incomes, uh, wealth, you know, you really see, you know. So the road I live on, there's houses for a million quid and two minutes down the road, you can pick a house up for sort of, you know, 80 grand, a flat for 50 grand. And that a lot of my neighbours turn off the drive and then drive the other way. And they never even acknowledge it right on the doorstep as an area that was a superb, brilliant seaside town, which had just been completely boarded up, neglected, forgotten about by the council. Um, and that sort of blinkered approach, I just I, I just got fed up with them and thought, well, I'm in a position I can do something about it. Um, and I've always been quite gobby, so I thought, <laughs> put money where my mouth is. Okay. Well, listen. Famous last words. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'd be sleeping on your sofa for <laughs> 12 months. So um, you've gone through a tremendous journey over nearly 30 years, built this business up, clearly sold it for a lot of money. Um, so on a personal level, um, you've got plenty of wealth. You could go off now into the sunset. You could... Uh, I could, the, I, could, I could have done. Yeah, you could have, um, yeah, you can't now. But um, 
the passion, the commitment, the drive that you've got for this next project, which we're going to talk about in more detail after the, after a short break now, um, it seems to me that there are a couple of things that are driving that because again, you and I have had conversation when you, you said, you know, well, I could have gone off and done the, the, the sort of party life, but you're not sure you'd have particularly enjoyed that and certainly wasn't sustainable. But I think what you're saying here is some deprivation on your doorstep, which clearly bothers you. Yeah. And politicians, probably at a local and national level, that have frustrated you in their inability to actually see the potential and opportunity in the area that you live. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I, I just think that on so many levels, I mean, I, I don't like to get into party politics because as, as, as far as I'm concerned, there's been failings over decades um, by both parties, you know, by all, by all parties. And I think that, that actually one of the biggest things that's wrong with politics at the moment is that there's not more consensus on on you know, things that should be carefully considered and implemented over multiple terms of, of, of government, you know, 20-year projects and things like that that aren't party political, that we can just, everyone should be able to agree on that we need X, Y, and Z. You know, so, so I, I, it, it's difficult. You see on a local level with so much, you know, New Brighton had and now hasn't got. When you're trying to turn around a place that has lost virtually every asset, that it had it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tall order to start with. But yeah, I was, I was pissed off. I was just pissed off at, I was pissed off at myself in some ways. But you know, um, like with CPL, I didn't really have an exit strategy for CPL because it, it, you know, when I started it, it, it ends up like a marriage. You, you sacrifice so much of your life to, to you know, um, not only grow but keep a business. Um, and that I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I first sold. I just need, because I still have the other half of the company and I still spent a lot of time sitting on the boards with being the chairman of the Institute of Licensing and sitting on UK Hospitality Board. They are polar opposites, if you like. You know, um, the Institute of Licensing is sort of regulators and that practitioners and that obviously UK hospitality is anything you know the hospitality sector and I was getting frustrated as well seeing both on a local level uh, you know all around the country and that you know on a wider level just some of the arguments and the um, the way things get implemented and I think there's just no pavement pragmatism there's no there's just no common sense sometimes in, in how things are done and you know, so this this was relevant to me in that it was on my doorstep, and that, and also I thought actually, you know, it, it's I've got I've got an opportunity to do this now. If I don't, um, I think the area would go. Once you go past sort of fifty percent of the road being closed, you're pretty much in free fall. It's it's very very hard to get it back from there. So the timing um, was 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 probably just right. Yeah. Okay. So. You've sold the business. You've still got other interests out. You've mentioned um, the boards that you sit on, and then um, yeah, they're unpaid. I mean, they do the yeah, 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 bits, yeah. Like But I think it's fair to say, Dan, they, they take up a lot of time. Yeah, they take up a lot of time, and I think it's fair to say, though, it it informs an awful lot of your thinking, doesn't it, around that sector, the hospitality, and 
Well, and license and, I mean, and sector. If, 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 I think if you're in a business, you take it whatever business you're in seriously in the sector you operate in, you've got to understand what I would call the ecosystem. Mm. So with CPL, you know, from a fairly early stage of it, we understand the market we operated in, uh, who are our customers, you know, what did they read, was the trade press, was for awarding bodies, was for professional bodies, was for trade associations, you know, who the main suppliers were. So you build up this sort of like, you know, ecosystem when you operate in a sector for a long time, especially if you, you know, if you if you um, disrupt it a bit like we did and, and you do well, you get obviously asked to go and, you know, uh, sit on different boards. And um, actually, in some ways, it works better than, than a lot of governments do because there is quite a bit of cross um you know, cross collaboration with people in different parts of the country, and you know, who who come up against the same problems. And as an association, um, you know, the hospitality association is 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 a big one, and it's important. It's a massive part of the UK um, economy. Um, so that sort of work, yeah, looking and saying, well, okay, I'm not going to move to a completely different sector actually the hospitality sector is one i really like uh, i have got a lot of experience in it both you know the early days running but then training for you know helping with regulation and you pick up a lot of things the institute of licensing again i've sat through you know sort of town planning um Things like uh, the Purple Flag initiatives, uh, how do you make city centres safer at night? You know, there's unfortunately, you know, a lot of uh, things like acid attacks and knife and crime and um, things that I've had to, you know, sit through and see the stats off. So when, you, when you've when you got that sort of experience, I thought, you know, the next, if I could do something that, you know, I'm passionate about, but also I've got the sort of skill set that I think I can deliver. Um it, you know, it all sort of came together at the same time, and, that, and that's when that's when I started Rock Point off. Okay, and Rock Point is what we're going to focus on. But first, we're going to have a short break. Um, we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the second part of the podcast, A Frank Conversation with Daniel Davis. Dan is the Chief Executive of Rock Point and he's going to tell us about that project now. Uh, as you say, Dan, you've sold uh, CPL training for life-changing money. You've had an opportunity to go off into the sunset and live a very, very different lifestyle. Don't think that would quite be you, to be fair. And you've had this burning passion to go into the community that you've lived in um, all of your life to uh, to turn a particularly challenging area around. But it wasn't always a challenging area, was it, going back in the day? Well, there's a reason I called it Rock Point Leisure, and that's because New Brighton used to be called Rock Point. Um, so if you wind back the clock back to 1830, um, a rock point was 170 acres of sand dunes, um, which was on the, the, the top northwest corner of the Wirral Peninsula uh, in Liverpool Bay. So it was 170 acres of sand dunes, and a guy called James Averton, who was an industrialist, used to live in Everton, and that he used to look over at the um, sand dunes, and he decided to come over and do a deal and buy um, 170 acres off a local landowner. 
and that he went down to Brighton in, on the south coast and that decided to form a new Brighton of the north. And that's why Rock Point became New Brighton uh, back in 1830. And he developed, he wanted to create a, a place where people could visit, have major attractions, and that it would be like the playground for, you know, the, uh, you know, for, 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 for people who lived and, um, and worked around the sort of local area. So he embarked on a really, um, you know, impressive project. He brought in, you know, Lord Derby, built the Derby Pool, Lord Leverhulme from Unilever, built the entire promenade, the longest in the country, and the biggest open-air baths in the world. Um, we had two piers, 11 theatres, um, a, we used to have trams going down Victoria Road, which is the main road I'm developing. Uh, and we used to have the largest open-air football pitch in the north um, and, and next to it a tower, which was the tallest tower in the UK. Um, so it was about 50 metres taller than Blackpool's, about two-thirds the size of the Eiffel Tower, and it sat on top of a three-and-a-half-thousand capacity ballroom. So it was, you know, a real huge amount of assets down there now. Um, and five million uh, day trippers um, a year from Liverpool, two peers. So it was a huge, huge, um, you know, important, significant seaside town back in, you know, from, you know, 18, 18 sort of 50 onwards. Um, in 1919, the tower came down. Um, they, they had to use the metal, but the ballroom still stayed in place till 1969. So it's exactly a hundred years since the tower came down, exactly 50 years since the ballroom burnt down. So my mum and dad remember going in the ballroom, a lot of the older people um, who live around there and in Liverpool will remember the tower ballroom. Uh, the Beatles played there 27 times, the Rolling Stones, the, you know, every major sort of artist and band uh, played there. It's a huge, huge venue. There was lots of other venues underneath the um, New Brighton Baths. There was a huge um, uh, dance hall called uh, the Riverside, and that's a big uh, gallery, balcony, live music would play, huge amounts of different things that, that attracted people. Um, and then it was over decades that it started to decline. So, um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the things had gone before I was even born, sort of 69, the tower burnt down, you know, the ballroom. Um, I was born in 73 and that by the seventies and eighties, you know, the package holidays were kicking in. Um, I, I think there was another wave and it's the sort of thing that wiped out Thomas Cook, you know, not, you know, that they brought him a package holiday sort of tours and everything. But then when you get cheap travel and cheap, you know, like, you know, with Ryanair and EasyJet and, and, you know, a lot of cheap carriers doing, you know, flights of 50 quid anywhere in, you know, in Europe. Um, these sorts of things affected a lot of seaside towns up and down the UK. And the, the ones that fared better were the ones that were in closer proximity to places like London. So, you know, Brighton, Bournemouth, and, um, Margate has had a bit of a renaissance with the Tracy Emin Museum. Um, Whitley Bay up in New, you know, the sort of um, northeast, uh, you know, that's, that's had a few changes to it. Blackpool's been in sort of terminal decline for a, for a while now. And then there's lots of other ones like New Brighton, which, you know, just got forgotten about. Um, so for 28 years, I've worked in London, you know, a couple of days a week. And that if, you know, people never even heard of New Brighton. Uh, so 
when I, you know, the reasoning behind rock points and stuff, um, I thought I want to do my history. If I'm going to do something here, I want to really sort of research, you know, the history of the town. Um, and then also look, well, how do you, how do you turn somewhere around that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't have a lot of the things that made it, um, you know, a significant um, a place. So it was it's a combination of selling CPL, coming back, you know, spending a bit more time around um, where I grew up. Uh, even though I've always had a house there, I've, you know, I've worked away a lot. Uh, I've just tended to sort of, you know, sleep there sometimes. And that with my uh, IOL job, I on a number of select committees, I get called for evidence, you know, to feedback, you know, from institutes and, uh, and the hospitality sector about different thoughts on things. So I'd done one a few years ago in 2017 um, on the, the, um, the performance of a licensing act sort of 10 years on. Um, and that I remember actually going out of that particular um, select committee and thinking I was, you know, I, was, I wasn't prepared as well as I should have been. And it was only really, you know, as you're walking into the House of Lords, walking past like Oliver Cromwell's grave and things, and you sort of get the magnitude of what you did let yourself in for. Um, and I vowed to myself, if I ever did another one, I'd really, really prepare. And, and it'd be sort of, I'd say, things all aligning at the same time of me selling CPL. I got asked to do another select committee, and this one was actually based, it was the future of seaside towns. So this is a, an all-party group in the, in the House of Lords. And they are they will basically look um, at evidence over a two-year period from every seaside town, you know, where money's been spent, what's worked, what hasn't worked, any interested parties from business groups, uh, licensing groups. Um, and they interview hundreds of people normally. Can't, you know, it's millions of quid's worth. Um, and they did this two-year um, report. Uh, I went down in the last sort of sort of three or four months of it, and we submitted um, a detailed sort of written um, submission to, to what I thought, you know, was wrong with, you know, sort of seaside town, some of the issues. But then by, by that time, I'd already started developing it. So I said, these are my ideas, these are my plans. Up until that point, they hadn't really found any examples. So they'd made one up and they'd called it Seaminster um, as, a, as a potential sort of model um, for future, you know, redevelopment, uh, sustainability. And then when we presented, when I presented um, sort of our model, we came out, you know, as, as number one, you know, potential model to look at. So, you know, they took a bit of a chance on us and, and, and um uh, and I've believed in the sort of model that I've put forward. And I'm keen, obviously, to deliver that. And that we've had no funding. Um, the council have over some very good people in the council who have been helping us. The whole sort of council system um, it is, you know, it's deeply flawed. And that, you know, we're a borough council, no matter who's been running it over decades, has got a lot of stuff wrong. So, um, again, that doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't help the situation when you're trying to turn around something that, you know, even things like the street lights are out, the, you know, the, the general state of repair of a lot of the, um, you know, the, the sort of street furniture and things is, is, is terrible. And that, you know, the first sort of job I did when I, when I decided I was going to do it was just to hire skips, um, clean out all the entries, get all the local kids who are causing problems to, you know, to, to actually, 
you know, come together, help stand down benches, clear up a fly tipping. Um, you know, there was some low level sort of antisocial behavior and things like that, but actually it's just because they didn't have anything to do, you know, some holidays and things like that. So we, we got them all to work. Um, I brought some friends over from America, from sort of South Central LA to speak to them about the importance of, you know, not getting a criminal record, being able to travel. We took them around CPL's offices. Um, I brought some sports stars to come and see them. This is, this is a quite a detailed, multifaceted approach that we're, we're looking at to engage both, you know, the local, um, you know, community, both old and young, give people opportunities. Um, and my idea really is to have sort of fierce independence. So most high streets look exactly the same. If you were to be blindfolded and dropped in anywhere, um, you wouldn't know where you were because of all the same sort of mid-range offers. And what had been really pissing me off is is the fact that you don't realise, even though I work with all these companies and training and education and IT with CPL, you, you realise that you, a lot of what we get in, in different parts of the country gets decided by people in an office in London when we look at a demographic report. So, for example, we'll get a Hungry Horse, we won't get a Miller and Carter, we'll get a Burger King, we won't get a Nando's. Um, and we get these sort of mid-level offers because that's what the demographic report says it will, you know, sustain. And it just really got driven home to me when, you know, even even looking like my next door neighbour, um, Roy, founded Revolution Vodka Bars, you know, fantastic operator, really good entrepreneur. But he tried to talk me out of it and said, Dan, you go completely mad if you, if you, you know, what are you doing? There's a reason I haven't invested down here for all these years because it won't work, it doesn't stack up. And my response was, well, that doesn't sound like a revolution. <laughs> um, now, about opening a new bar chain called Surrender or Estrella said, you know, how can you invest in every single town and city in the whole of the UK apart from where you live in? It's two minutes down the road from you. Your house price is going to go up anyway. And, you know, he's got investors now, they're, they're private equity. And when you get that sort of private equity money, it, unfortunately, you know, you've got some young punk from like Harvard or Yale telling you how to, how to, you know, how to run the business. And these people who couldn't put a pin in the map of where New Brighton is. And it's just, you know, at the, revolution wouldn't have started if he'd applied the same sort of principles that he's trying to get me to apply. Mm. And also, I mean, I've had a few run-ins not only with the council, but the likes of um, a couple of the big pub companies that, um, but, but I know very well because we deal with them at CPL. Um, and again, as some of them have a, a, a sort of a, a view of sort of business that is, is not aligned, you know, to the way, you know, that I want to be running it. So again, behind closed doors, they talk about, you know, their, their, their pub chains being really inclusive and um, pub should be part of the community and an absolute community hub. But a lot of the time that they say all this, it's to a closed door set of investors, uh, bankers, and actually they don't deliver any of it outside of that particular meeting room in London or something. So I've I've gone down and challenged a few of the chief execs and said, really good speech, sounds great. Um, and you know what? Even if you don't do it in all your other pubs, you're going to do it in, in mine. <laughs> You know, and, and, and so, so for James Averton as the first pub that we opened, we changed it from a railway to James Averton, who, who founded New Brighton. 
our man is a traditional pub, so we've, you know, and we take a sort of a community spirit really seriously. So we've been, we've paid uh, barmen to go, but, but, you know, bartenders to go in and do cocktail classes at the local sort of care homes and residential homes. We pay for taxis to go and pick the people up who've got, you know, mobility issues so they can you know, they come watch the match and things. Um and they'd, and also we try and pair people up who are, you know, lonely. We don't want anyone to be, you know, on their own or isolated. So any barriers that they have in the way that we've been taking them down, and that's what a proper community pub should do. Um, you know, the, the staff I have are, have been brilliant, you know, the, the, the very young team that we're teaching them. Um, and, that you know, their hopes and dreams, their fears, you know, are ahead of them. Um We've already put um, a few of them into to local their first apartments and things like that down there. So we want to create something that they've got opportunity, um, and 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 these kids will be you know um, encouraged to you know to, to to express themselves in whatever they you know that, that they are passionate about. So it might be food, it might be drink, it might be music, it might just be great service. Um, you know, ideas that they've got, you know, we'll give them a bit of an entrepreneurial base. Um, most of the people who teach a business have never run one before. So um, when they're actually on the ground and that, you know, helping them, you know, sort of set up and things um, and, and they're coming to us with ideas, um, you know, all of this is good and this is exactly what we want to be doing. You've got to give people opportunity and, that, and they've got to feel safe um, and that this is the sort of thing that we're, you know, that we're doing down in Rockpoint. And just to describe for those that don't know New Brighton, don't know the particular part of the world that you're talking about, what you've done, Dan, is you've taken a major artery running down into the into the front, uh, Victoria Road. Yeah, but it's, so if you, if the promenade, marine promenade, is is, is sort of the, the, the actual prom, and then if you go a couple of roads, sort of parallel in the, the old high street, the main old town part of New Brighton is is then it's Victoria Road, and it, it it's a road that used to have hundreds of shops on, and some of them have been turned to houses now. A lot of them have been boarded up. So when um, about eighteen months ago, about forty percent of the road was boarded up, including three banks. Um, uh, two pubs, uh, restaurants, different shops, and things like that. So what we've what we've done is we've either bought or leased, you know, um, any one that's been closed down, and started you know refurbing them. And we've given some money to some new start businesses. So there's five online uh, clothing brands that started at home in the parents' houses. And at the moment, 250 shops a week are closing to online businesses. We invested in in five of them, and they're now uh, in the first bricks and mortar place. So that's a complete reversal of what's going on. And this is the sort of thing that we're doing. We want to keep it independent because there's lots of little businesses down that road. So Ian, the um, greengrocer, he's been there 40 years. Now, if he if he ends up going, which he was close to doing before we started, you know, that is literally the difference between some people leaving the house and not because an old person can go to Ian's like three times a week and buy enough to for one or two meals. And they walk down the road, be interact with everyone, Ian knows them. If that's short and they have to go down the hill to Morrison's and then back and, you know, they've got to buy bigger multi-pack things, it could often be the difference between either leaving the house or not. So isolation really comes in there. So, um, 
we've been working with um, you know some local kids as well to let them you know speak to the older people and break down that sort of barrier that's that's been um, especially with a lot of historical stuff we've been telling people about and giving them the history of New Brighton. So in the pub, we've put up all the original photographs. We've painted some murals that have, that have you know, um, are things that, that have been there, like the tower and stuff. And this gets the sort of conversation going between the sort of kids and the older people and things like the Beatles mural that we did with the tower. Um, every year, if it goes by, there'll be one year when no one remembers it. So the, the older generation have really been coming along with us because um, we're bringing back some memories for them that would other be otherwise be lost and that and they wouldn't be passed on. So you've crossed over, um, forgive the pun, very quickly there. These murals, <laughs> uh, I've been and seen them. They yeah. are spectacular. I mean, they sort of transform the area in terms of its feel, in terms of its dynamic. As you say that mural there that you've got of the old tower and then the old Mersey beat bands and others that played there that you were talking about earlier. But then there's also the Martin Luther King mural, which I thought was spectacular as well. How did that one come about? Um, that was the first one. And that uh, I was used to be into uh, U2, the band. So U2 was, was a music I listened to a lot in the eighties, before the Joshua Tree was a hardcore sort of diehard fan. And, you know, and I think music can change things again. You know, I grew up in the 80s where we had Band-Aid and everyone was trying to feed the world or Nancy Reagan was saying, just say no. It probably wasn't as successful. <laughs> um, and that um, it, it was, I remember getting the single Pride in the Name of Love and that it was the, the you know, the cover of the picture of Martin Luther King and, and the, the lyrics were about that. And like a lot of you two songs, they told the, um, you know, it, uh, they basically told you about either what was going on at the time in the world or it shone a light on, on people like him. And that I, I was always quite political, so I joined Amnesty International quite, uh, you know, quite young. And I looked at the civil rights movement and that it just really brought it home to me. I've been in America, um, in New York, and that when I decided to start a project, I thought, when I looked at Brooklyn, Brooklyn is the same sort of distance between, um, you've got to go under or over a, a river to get to Manhattan. And that it's about the same distance as New Brighton is to Liverpool. And that in the sort of seventies and eighties, Brooklyn, Bronx, places like that were very run down, a lot of deprivation. And they brought back a lot of those communities to life through independent business, street art, uh, real creative, you know, sort of like hubs and things. And that I've, I've, I've visited there a number of times and, and spoken to different business owners there and city officials. And that what I wanted to, to sort of do at a time where, again, with what was going on in America and the sort of polarization and Brexit, where it doesn't seem to be any sensible middle ground, everyone's just screaming at each other from the sides. Was I thought, you know, after Charlottesville and everything you've seen up there was going on in America, um, I just thought the image of Martin Luther King um, was such a strong image and it was on Hope Street. It was a pub I didn't own, so we just painted the back of it. I ended up having the, um, the, the operations director and an MD of a company screaming at me down the phone saying, you've got to stop immediately, which I, I told them I wasn't going over. said, you don't even know where the pub is. You couldn't put a pin on it. You own 5,300. Um, and I'm not going to stop. You want to come paint over it? You can do. Um, 
Well, they, they like it now. Um, <laughs> and we painted a picture of Martin Luther King with the U2 lyrics um, from Pride in the Name of Love saying, early morning, April 4, shot rings out in the Memphis sky, free at last, they took your life, but they could never take your pride. And we unveiled it on the 4th of April. So we, we projected the I Have a Dream speech from the roof of the pub over to a big a blank wall above the restaurant to beat me we've got. And um, we just put speakers out and we didn't tell anyone about it. We just, we just played it and we had about 100 people just standing, you know, just listening to that speech. And if you listen to that speech, especially what's going on in the world, you, you realise just, I mean, what a special person he was and that, and just how powerful those words were. So after that, we, we put the U2 um, Pride of the Name of Love uh, video on and then we walked everyone around to, to that and it, it had the colours of every flag Um sort of um, actually sort of draped over the Union Jacks because it was meant to be the week we were leaving Europe. So it was it's had that sort of message as well, where, you know, of unity. So, so that one did me, it meant a lot to me personally, that one, because it was just an image that was very powerful. And that when you walk up Hope Street now and see Martin Luther King, I think it is a strong message. Um you know, and, and that was that was um, Alex and, and the guys from, from London who, who organised that one, uh, uh, Felix and everyone. But since then, we've brought a number of other artists in, have been working, we've got a really good team on board. And that we've, we've had people like Ben Ein, um who do a piece. He's He was the only living artist whose work's in the White House. The um, Camerons bought the Obamas, a Ben Ein piece. And him and Banksy started Pictures on Walls. So someone like him to actually come up, I believe, in the project, He's, he painted a huge piece. Um, it, it was quite funny because he was, he was meant to paint New New Brighton and we had to move the wall at the last minute. So he said, I'm going to do something different in the neon instead of a circus font. So he said, I'm going to write, I can see the sea. I remember the night before we got that pissed and uh, we, were, we were staying up, he had a roofless tight tattooed across the side of his head in the tattoo <laughs> parlour. When I asked him, I mean, in like two inch letters, each one right across the side of his head, roofless. And I said, why did he get that done? He said, my ex-wife's called Roof. <laughs> so, and then he forgot to write can. So it says, I see the sea. <laughs> uh, but, but, he's, he's no, and, and he, but he is an absolute legend, you know, and, and uh, Doc Master came up and did one of, one of his series that he's coming back up again. Ben's actually just agreed. He's just done a Christmas card we're going to send out from Rock Point, which is a new, new Brighton one, but a benign one. So we're going to print them and send them to all our uh, Victoria Quarter residents. And that in itself is a piece of artwork. Yeah. But we've had Snick. Snick is about to come up as a huge artist. We've had Mr. Sens. We've got a lot of local artists who are working with them as well and doing their own walls. But we've also are bringing some of the best in the world in. Mm. And what you're doing there, Dan, and your ambition is to create community, obviously to create some jobs and create wealth yeah. and an entrepreneurial ambition among the people that are there. Um, and it's clearly about growing the indigenous businesses. Yeah. Um, but of course, you'd love them to go off and flourish and work elsewhere whilst keeping the roots in New Brighton. Now, all this is going on. You've said that you've been down to Westminster. You've spoken to politicians at the highest level. There's a recognition acknowledgement that, that what you're doing is unique, innovative, potentially can deliver some really huge regeneration benefits and transformation. Um, but I'm sensing from 
the conversation that locally we're not getting massive amounts of support or would it be wrong? Um, there's individuals, so the, the, the will to, to, to get things, you know, to, 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 to make a change is obviously there. I just think that it, it's just a problem. It, 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 it's a problem up and down the country, but it's just, you know, it, I, I'm just seeing it in, in sort of under a, a microscope, if you like, uh, you know, just on this one, in this one area. It's hard because the council hasn't got the money, you know, for whatever reason, um, it hasn't got the money to even upkeep the, the area. So we spent a disproportionate amount of money on things we don't own, on things that should have been done by the council. Uh, and that is very, very frustrating. It's also frustrating when they move at the speed of a glacier. So in you know, like two inches a year, I mean, it, it, you know, we've had like four bins off them. They've replaced four bins. That's pretty much it. And okay, they've helped. I mean, Lucy's been really helpful and Caroline. Um, they, they, you know, they have been very helpful, but their, their hands are tied as well. Um, you know, but the, the world's a mad place at the moment. And that I think the, the one thing I knew I couldn't really rely on at the start was the council. So although I didn't want them to hold things up, but I knew I wasn't going to get any money and that I knew it was going to be a bit of a stretch. So... It, it, it's annoying. It's annoying sometimes. It's annoying when they go and bring an artist in from to paint the dips, for example. Um, they, they brought this French artist in to paint the dips in this like temporary paint, um, and apparently done one outside the Eiffel Tower. But as I pointed out, you can see it from the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> so when you're just driving past on a dip and you just see this like sort of black mark on there on one of the, the dips, it just looks like someone's thrown a cigarette out and <laughs> burnt. And their argument was, well, the tour of Britain was going past, so we'd be able to see it from the helicopter as they're viewing it. As it went past, they cut to a commercial break. <laughs> so that whole argument again was a uh, not very good. But so when you see them blowing money on things, you think, you know. Ben Ein and all of these, you know, artists stayed above the puff. They they were there every day that they were painting. They were part of the community. They were speaking to people. When they brought French artists over, no one saw them. They just turned up and, and went over. They stayed in Liverpool, I think, and, and went over and did that. But council obviously paid over the odds, always will, forever, I think. Um, so so it, it just, it's frustrating, that's all. Mm. I don't want to slag them off too much because, you know, there's some very good individuals within the council, but also as well, I mean, some of the teams sometimes give me a hard time about going on to me, but you've just got to remind yourself, and again, this is the world we live in, that the chief executive, you know, the council gets paid more than the defence secretary, the home secretary, the foreign secretary, the education secretary, and the prime minister. So, you know what I mean? It's, it's, I'm the chief executive of Arrow Park Hospital and places like that. You know, we have no problem with a footballer getting paid more in a week than the Prime Minister does in a year. You know, that's, that's, the, that's where, you know, the world we're living in at the moment is a bit mad. So you'd appreciate why some of the challenges are there for the local authority. You've obviously took them on head on and, you know, again, the story you've said about the pub owners phoning you up and saying stop and, Obviously, that wasn't going to happen. Um, so where's the project up to now? What's your time scale? 
Well, we've got um, we've got a clothes shop open, five businesses trading that there. We've got James Averton, the pub open. Um, we're converting upstairs and a roof terrace and another bar area upstairs at the moment. We've got um, Habibi opening, uh, open, uh, which is a restaurant. We've developed a big outside area there, which is all getting decked as we speak. Um, we've bought a couple of pieces of land. We're going to do some um, um, stuff on be a bit flexible to so be able to do like vegan market and, uh, you know, an arts fair and things. We've got Oakland where our main offices are. Uh, we've got art space upstairs and free office space we've been given to new start businesses like a little incubation unit. Um, so we're going to be moving our office to the first floor um, in the next few weeks and we're developing downstairs there, um, which again will be a space. Ultimately, it'll be a live music venue, but in the meantime, we just want to have it as a bit of space to do stuff over Christmas um next door we've got rock point records which is a four-story building so we're gonna have a recording studio downstairs a ground floor we've got a tattoo um a tattoo parlor we've got a barber shop we've got a record store coffee shop memorabilia um you know all different vinyl records different genres and things so but that's something again that um you know we, we want to have places that you come to that are different as a retail experience uh, quirky, you know, but not just a, a, a purpose-built box. You know, we've got three old banks, so you go down to the cellars, that you go down into the safes that you walk into. You There's lots of different quirky areas. If you bring it all to life with street art as well, so we, we, we're trying to encourage sort of like, you know, artists, musicians, the creative, you know, sort of community. We're not having to encourage them, but they're coming to the, to the area. And I think all of this just makes it different than, than a lot of the, you know, the sort of bog standard chains and things. So um, we, we want to give opportunities to young, you know, artists as well, um, who, you know, not just, you know, the sort of street artists, but also, you know, music artists. So we'll give them some time in the studio and things like that. We'll probably do some, you know, um, some podcasts and stuff with them uh, or interviews with them. So these are the sorts of things that we'll look at. We've got them open. We the art is about it's free. It's you know it's 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 brightening up what we're just you know often walls that were flaking with paint you know just crumbling and we're bringing them back to life and we're, we're painting a lot of buildings down there and bringing in different artists all around the world. And the point is, this is a free gallery. People can walk around and they can. You know, but they, they, they can look at it and some of the areas we're painting are really neglected because they were off the high street and there were areas we just used as dumping grounds for, you know, fly tipping and antisocial behaviours taking place. And because we're lighting them and we've painted all the lampposts, sanded all, you know, benches down, we've got rid of any graffiti and we're putting proper art there. But suddenly the whole place is becoming, you know, it feels you know more vibrant, more, you know, safer. We're getting a huge amount of, of people come in, you know, tourists and things traveling up, looking at the art. So I, I can meet the artists and speak to them as they're doing it and, you know, they're dead approachable. So I forgot my other question. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying timeline. So you've started the project, obviously you're into it now. You've talked about some of the things that have been delivered. When would you hope to have the the final product? I know these things never so, finish in a sense. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's got to carry on organically. I mean, yeah, we've yeah. got, we've got a number, we're opening a Chinese restaurant and bar and everything in the old West Bank. 
Uh, so that'll be, that'll be starting. We've got about four or five projects on the go at the moment, and then we'll be moving into into the sort of next phase of it, which is yeah, um, which is continuing with the art, opening an art gallery as well there um, at the live music venues, um, putting a lot more training in place and doing a lot of engagement. We've got in Birkenhead, they've got the Hive, um, which is a, as a sort of like a youth centre. So we haven't really got anything for the kids around New Brighton, but we've been giving them a bit of work, you know, to keep them, to keep them busy. I'd like to develop, you know, we're in talks with a number of different uh, companies there about developing a couple of things down there for them, you know, um, so they've got some proper activities to do, you know, positive activities to do. Cool. So you're involved and you will be for, for a long time yet, I guess, in this very innovative, eclectic regeneration programme. Uh, and we'd love to come over in the new year. Definitely. Uh, do an event yeah. across there, bring some people across to have a look. It's it, it. I tell you, until you see it and feel it, you can't appreciate how special that project is and is going to be. But, uh, you know, if anyone's listening, they're interested in getting involved in that, just get in touch with us. But use the phrase, I want to finish on this, Dan. Um, earlier on in our conversation, you said, I've had to make some real personal sacrifices to keep my business going at times mm. and then to obviously create something that was massively successful. Just tell me a bit more about what those sacrifices look like for people who might be listening to this thinking, this sounds great. You build a business up for 20 odd years, you sell it for life-changing money, and then you go and do something that is absolutely life-changing for lots of other people as well. Sounds easy the way you've explained it today. Tell me about those sacrifices. Um, well, when you start a business, no one really tells you about, you know, what you're really letting yourself in for. And I think you make a, dis- a decision. If you, Let's say, for example, you... There's a difference between being self-employed and having a um, a business. So it might be if, if, you, if you're self-employed, say, and you're just employing yourself, but that can very easily turn into something more complex. So say, say you're a plumber and, and you employ you and your, your lad and you go out and you've got one van, but then you start getting more contracts and you get two or three vans, then you've got more people on your books, then you're paying pay. So sometimes you've got to decide, do you want to be bigger or do you what, what do you want? In your life, and these, these are often things that you don't ask yourself when you've started it, but you, perhaps you should have done. Um, so, when you've gone through a number of recessions and things, when you grow in, there's times where you know you, you well, you've got to personally guarantee things. So, you know, as your business grows, banks and things will want like that. They will want you to 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 back up. Um, any borrowing that you might want off them or facilities that you want off them. So you end up personally guaranteeing stuff. And and I think it depends how you are as a business person as well. I always wanted to run a business that I was proud of, that we could build up, that I would want to work in, you know. Um, so we wanted our, our office space to be, you know, to, to, to have the best sort of views and aspect and, and be a nice place to work. Um, and that, and, and, but there's times, I mean, there was times where I went two years without taking any money out at all because I didn't want to make people redundant. So you end up not taking, there was a time where, you know, I had virtually no mortgage on my house. I mean, you have to remortgage it, you know, a few hundred thousand pounds to, to throw in the business. You've got to prop it up. 
you can have, you know, you can have big, I remember in 2008 when a recession hit and literally every week I was just looking at different customers were going under and I'd just bought two business partners out the year before and, you know, I'd look and say, quick saves, just gone there, applying to Wine Cellar or Fretcher Group and every time you're thinking there was 100,000 quid or 200 grand and this is money that we'd paid, you know, we'd paid out. And also they spent X amount with us that you're not going to get as repeat, you know, as ongoing business. So it is, you know, I watched businesses that were very established go under. A lot of businesses went under. And it's when you run a business, you carry a lot of weight on your shoulders. Um, A lot of weight, the more staff that you have, the more of your your team that you have, you you can't help but, you know, realise that, you know, everyone's mortgage payment, rent payment, car payments, you know, kids, everything you, you think they're relying on, you're making the right move and your team making the right moves. And that it's hard sometimes, there's a lot of pressure. Um, and, and also it's hard when you travel. I traveled a lot, so it's hard, you know, having, it's hard relationships because, you know, I'm, I'm not married. I'm, I'm, I'm with a um uh, with my girlfriend, I've been with her on and off for about five years. Um, and, that you know, I've had no kids, I've got a rescue dog, Archie. Um, so you, you, you make, you know, you, you do make sacrifices. Um, and there's times that you hate the business. I mean, there was, there was years where I absolutely hated it. I just felt shackled to it because, I, I you know, I, I couldn't walk away um, simply because of the sort of commitments and things like that that we had. And, and you know, it's a love-hate relationship sometimes. But I, I think start a business if you're really passionate about it, but also say you can rush into something and sometimes it's better just really, you know, being good at something. Um, and if, if you can have a business that you're really passionate about and you enjoy, it's good. Um, I think, though, you know, looking forward, think about how you, the business that you start never ends up generally just doing the same thing. It has to, it has to evolve. It has to, the world changes, you know, um, and that you've got to move with it. You've got to be able to adapt, you know, and, and the biggest challenges I think moving forward are things like if you're not skilled, you'll be replaced by a robot or, you know, artificial intelligence. It's already happening. Every time you go to an airport, and you, you know, you, you check in, and someone's showing you how to check in on my self-service thing, they may as well be saying, uh, let me introduce you to my replacement. Mm. Uh, at McDonald's, you go in and instead of having 15 staff behind the counter, there's two and you, there's all the chaos, you know, and all they need is electricity. They haven't got a pension, they're not on a, a minimum wage. Uh, they turn up early, they leave late, and that's what, you know, that's what you've got to think of. So... I think be good at something, be passionate about something. I, you know, I, I don't want a world where everything is like, you know, RoboCop and, um, you know, it's just this Orwellian sort of like, you know, overreach. But on the other hand, you know, you've got to recognise that if you look at major factories, where I mean, manufacturing has been ahead of a game for, for, for a while. If you look at like factories that used to employ 18,000 people, they employ 3,000 now. If you look at Amazon's, you know, sort of operations, um, I think we've got to excel in things that you can't be replaced by a robot, you know, um, and, 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 you know, what we're trying to do down, down there. This is exciting. It, it, it's stressful and that, some days I wake up and think, what the fuck am I doing? Because, you know, I, 
you know, I could have just, just put my feet up or not, I'd ever do nothing, but I could have just, you know, taken it easy and I'm risking my whole lot again now. Um, but I don't mean to be honest with you, I don't really, this is more than the, the money for me. It's about, it's about doing something on the doorstep and that, and actually never really just imagine still running it, you know, 10, 20 years later. Um, with, with, with Rock Point, I know the sort of, I know I've been through these journeys now, so I know what to expect. Um, and that I just think any advice to, you know, someone who's going into a business, if you, if you really take it seriously, it, it is a, it is a marriage and it's, it's, you have your ups and your downs. <laughs> and on that note, um, keep on keeping on, mate. Good luck with the project. And as Cheers. I say, we'll, uh, we'll get you to some of our events next year. Thanks to Daniel Davis for having a frank conversation with Downtown in Business.